You're listening live to Right Side Radio with Phil Williams. It's hard to go wrong when you're on the right side. Right Side Radio. Solid, conservative, and just plain right. AM 92.5 FM News Talk WVNN. We are the talk of North Alabama. And listen, this is Right Side Radio, where we are solid, conservative, and just plain right. I'm Phil Williams, your host. I'm glad to be with you. It is 2.08 right now. We're getting into another day of Right Side Radio. It's been a great week. Copper is running the board. Copper, good day to you. Good day. Good day. Hey, uh, we, we got a lot planned for today. Uh, there's there's going to be some interesting things happening. Uh, later in the show, uh, we've got a couple of scoops. I mean, I really think we're some of the first people to even talk about this. At 3 o'clock hour, uh, I'm going to tell you why the ACLU is mad at Phil Williams from Right Side Radio. Hmm. I'll be honest with you. If the, if the ACLU is mad at me, I feel like I'm probably doing something right. And then at 3.30, we got uh, my friend Matt Clark, who was on with us on Monday, and he, he talked about the fact that there was a ordinance potentially coming out from the Montgomery mayor's office that could require sexual orientation be considered in business practices around the city. Guess what? Matt Clark has got the scoop on that because he got hold of a copy of the ordinance before it was ever made public, and he's ready to dissect that for us in great detail. He's going to call in at 330 I'm going to be opening the phone lines later in the 4 o'clock hour, but this first hour is going to be interesting for me uh, because, you know, it's right side radio. And I've told you that uh, every single day, y'all, if I, can, if I can enlighten, empower, educate, entertain you, that's what we're going to do. And, 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 and it, is, it is my passion. I hope you can hear the passion in my voice uh, that this is, I mean, I'm loving this. I, I told Charlene, my wife, who I talk about every day, and I'm going to get her on the show. I mean, I'm I'm trying to get her on tomorrow. Y'all, y'all, y'all encourage her. She wants. I, I I want her on the show, but I was telling her this morning that you know this opportunity to to have this voice. This is an honor to have this platform. I cannot tell you what it means to me to have this platform to be able to speak to you and to be able to share the experiences that God has put in my life through years of working either in full-time ministry or as a practicing attorney or uh, as a state uh, senator or, for that matter, as an army officer with tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. All those things have swirled together to, to give me a perspective that I am honored to have a chance to try and bring to you. And every single day I start off with what I call the right side way. And I'm going to spend a few minutes, and i got to be honest with you, uh, today, um, truthfully, I am, I am mad and upset all at one time. Just in the last 10 minutes, the President of the United States, the Commander-in-Chief, got on the news, literally, in the last 10 minutes, and said that with regards to the war in Afghanistan, no mission was accomplished. Well, by God, we won that war. And I'll tell you right now, as somebody who served there, as somebody who knows people that, that, that went through hell and back being there, and, and, and the, the generations, actually, of our military troops who have served there, we won that war. Mr. Biden, you just lost the peace. That's what happened. U.S. troops have every bit of honor intact, and the idea that the president or the commander-in-chief can say no mission was accomplished, well, that's leadership for you, and it tends to show you where we're at. I have watched with dismay as the Biden administration continues to diminish the abilities of our great U.S. military. But more than that, I also have been dismayed by the way they treat our allies. So throughout 2004, in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom, I commanded a civil affairs team from the 489th Civil Affairs Battalion. It was already my second tour in the war. I'd already served a year in a remote corner of Afghanistan right after 9-11. Uh, in Afghanistan, my team, we were like completely unconventional. It was, it was 
with beards, civilian clothes. Sometimes we rode horseback, uh, operating in isolated locations for the entire year. In Iraq, on the other hand, my team was attached to an infantry battalion right smack in the center center of Baghdad during the middle of the 2004 Shia uprising. My call sign was Titan 6, and on the door of our team room, I had a homemade sign that summed up our mission, which read, win friends, kill enemies. I still have that sign today. And, and I, you know, think about it. Win friends, kill enemies. Are those just words? No. Words are meaningful. My son told me one time, you can tell a great deal about a person by the quotes he puts on his social media. And I think there's some truth in that. People gravitate towards quotes and verses and speeches that spark their imagination and, and inspire them into action. And words can carry import far beyond their original utterances. And at some point, a compilation of words can gather meaning and become a force even unto themselves. I mean, when words are backed by meaning and intent and emotion, those words can help shape events and shape people. And when that happens, they become far more than just words. I can tell you unequivocally, there are some words that have truly changed me over the past five decades. I believe the Bible is God's unerring word. I have a life verse. That's Joshua 1, 8 and 9. I've been sworn to uphold the words written in the constitutions of the United States and the state of Alabama. I have a number of key books up on the shelves in my study that are just dog-eared and underlined, all of which are just more than mere words to me. I could spend a great deal of time focusing on each one of these, but for this edition of The Right Side Way, I chose to focus on one particular group of words that explains why I do the things I do and why I feel the way I feel today about the Biden administration's issuance on Afghanistan. And those words are called the Ranger Creed. So some years ago, like uh, 1991 to be exact, when I was a whole lot younger and less breakable, I was given the opportunity to go to the U.S. Army Ranger School. And for the next several months, I spent time getting all broken down under some of the most extreme conditions in mountains and swamps and deserts and other conventional training sites. I lost 32 pounds while I was there. I had frostbite. I had trench foot. And I had some super hallucinations from lack of sleep. I mean, it took me a little while, but I finally realized the garden gnomes that I saw running through the trees, they weren't real. Literally, my ranger class had over 400 people trying to get in on day one. Only 250 made it past day one. Only 95 graduated. Ranger school taught me a great deal about small unit tactics and leadership. But over time, what I realized was that more than anything, it taught me about myself, and it defined the way that I would approach what the Ranger Creed calls, quote, my share of the task in whatever I was involved in. Becoming a Ranger was, in actual fact, many ways more mental and emotional than it was physical, and the essence of how it's impacted my life can be found in the Ranger Creed. I encourage you to look it up. Just type in Ranger Creed in any search engine, and you'll find it. And every single day, we were called on to recite the six stanzas of the Ranger Creed. And I mean, usually we we're like screaming at the top of our lungs, the first stanza of the Ranger Creed. And you just had to, you had to go into it and you had to say it verbatim. And woe unto the man who could not recall it on cue. And initially, uh, you know, the goal was just like to memorize it. That way you didn't have to do push-ups when the Ranger instructors called you out. But at some point in the process, it became more than just a recitation of mere words. I literally began to believe that if I met the goals of the course, quote, energetically, with the determination to, quote, not fail my comrades, that I would make it through. I determined to, quote, gallantly show the world that I'm a specially selected and well-trained soldier. The fact that, quote, surrender is not a ranger word was not just an attitude for me that was only for the battlefield. It was an attitude that I adopted for life. And since that time, I've drawn on those words in any number of non-military settings. I mean, just to name a few, 
fighting on to the Ranger objective can be done in running a budget-constrained nonprofit ministry like I did. It can be in making a late-in-life decision like I did to go to law school five nights a week and still maintain a full-time day job and raise my kids and all at the same time. Passing the bar exam, running for office, debating bills on the floor of the Alabama Senate, or starting a radio show. To, quote, fight on to the Ranger objective is how I view each calling I've had in my life, and I've come to understand I can cite the Ranger creed and substitute a different word in the title for whatever it is I'm committed to. It could be the Christian's creed. It could be the senator's creed. It could be the lawyer's creed, the businessman creed, the radio guy creed. It fits every one of them. I say all this to encourage each of you, if you've not already done so, identify the creed you're going to live by. You'll become known for it. And I can assure you, if you do not establish your creed for living, the world's going to give you one by default. You should have your bedrock principles and core beliefs from which you will not be moved. And the creed you live by is the means by which you put those beliefs into action. But there's one line of the Ranger Creed that stands out to me today, and it's why I'm mad. And that line is, quote, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And if you're watching the news right now, you know the Biden administration chose to enact an unexpectedly quick departure from Afghanistan. An abrupt pullout literally in the dark of night. Bagram Air Base, which I saw in the early days, has been abandoned and in one fell swoop is already being looted. The Taliban's been emboldened by the swift exit. They no longer have any reason to negotiate. All they wanted was a U.S. out of their way, and we just handed it to them on a silver platter expeditiously. Now understand me, wars have to end. I get that. It is time for the U.S. to cease the expenditure of blood and treasure on that faraway soil, but there was no reason why we could not keep a forward operating presence there from which to project our foreign policy in the most troubled region in the world. And more than any of that are the fates now of our friends. The Afghan men and women who served alongside U.S. forces for 20 years, we've abandoned them. They have not even been prioritized for special immigrant visas. At a time when our southern border is being overrun by illegal entry, we're not even taking reasonable steps to extricate our friends who bled and fought with us for so long, and that's a travesty. Last night, I wrote a personal letter to the members of Alabama's U.S. delegation, asking them in Congress and the state and the U.S. Senate to take all necessary steps to assist those members of our interpreter ranks and others who are at risk. Give them enhanced prioritized status for consideration for visas. It's vital. It's who we are as a nation, and we owe it to them. Well, listen, y'all, we're going to go to a break here in a minute. But in a minute... I'm excited because I'm going to bring on a friend of mine. His name's Hamid. He's had a dramatic impact on my life. He's been an inspiration to me. He was my interpreter in Afghanistan, and he's now a U.S. citizen. Hamid is living well. He's been able to make it over here, and he has a perspective that none of us could possibly relate to, but we can certainly hear it from him. Well, folks, that's a wrap for the Right Side Way for today. I am mad. In a minute, I'm going to come back and tell you about Hamid. I'm going to give you a story. And at the bottom of the hour, he's going to join us by phone. I hope you'll listen in. His story is worth telling. His perspective is worth hearing. And I'll tell you right now again, Mr. Biden, by God, we won that war. You just lost the peace. This is Phil Williams, Right Side Radio. Where we are solid, conservative, just plain right. We'll be right back.
770 AM, 92.5 FM News Talk on WVNN. We are the talk of the town or the talk of North Alabama. Right Side Radio with Phil Williams as your host. The time right now is 224, and we are still solid, conservative, and just plain right. You heard my comments a few minutes ago. I talked pretty uh, passionately, I guess, about my feelings about the war in Afghanistan and about having a creed to live by and the fact that part of the Ranger creed that I chose to, um, uh, you know, take on as part of my overall life is uh, never leave a fallen comrade behind. I want to tell you about one of my comrades, one of my friends, somebody who has meant a lot to me over the years. And in a moment, uh, if all continues to go well with technology, we're going to have him on the air with us. But uh, my, my buddy Hamid. So when the war kicked off in Afghanistan, um, almost immediately I was mobilized. And I think, I'm not positive, but I think I became the first Alabamian um, uh, activated from reserve status to be sent in country. And, you know, I wound up with my small team being uh, uh, sent out on a special operations mission that lasted for 10 months, boots on the ground, um, in a remote corner of Afghanistan called Kanduz. There were no other Americans. It was my six-man team and a 12-man special forces team. We grew beards. We ate Afghan food. We lived among the people. And one of those people was Hamid. Hamid, I believe, was roughly 17 or so when we met him. And he had um, learned English a bit and had self-taught quite a bit and was extremely sharp and literally became part of the family, part of the team. Hamid wound up living with us. He wasn't just the guy who showed up for duty every day. We recognized that we couldn't talk to anybody after the lights went out. If something happened, we had to have somebody around, and Hamid was the guy we wanted, and Hamid stayed with us day in, day out. But like every war, uh, the soldiers eventually go home. And uh, at the end of my tour, towards the end of 2002, uh, I redeployed back with my team. All of us came home. Um, and, uh, and, and life began to resume. I wound up doing another tour in Baghdad in 2004 and I hadn't been home long from Baghdad. Uh, and I was working in my law firm again and the secretary comes in and says, there's a, uh, a long distance call overseas, I believe from somebody named Hamid. And I said, Hamid. And I couldn't believe it because when I left, there had been no electricity, no running water, you know, no phones for that matter. And the idea that Hamid was calling me was amazing. So we got on the phone and talked. He was, a, he was a refugee at that point. His family had been threatened. His brother died mysteriously because of his service with Americans. And he had decided the best thing to do was to leave. And he had fled north to Tajikistan and was in a UN refugee camp. And over the next 12 months, myself and one of the other guys from my team spent time uh, sending him money for subsistence and uh, talking to our congressman. And we were able to get Hamid over here to the U.S. And Hamid came here with $10 in his pocket and an understanding that the United States was a place that had a different quality of life than perhaps he'd ever seen. He did not forsake or stop loving his home country whatsoever, and he had family back there. But he found a new home here in the United States. And Hamid began to work. And when I say work, I mean he went to work. He got a job. He began to do things. He began to contribute. He took some testing to make sure his education level would equate to something like high school in the United States, and he did, and that was on his own merit, by the way. And then he went on from there to, uh, to get a two-year degree, I believe, and then he got a scholarship to the University of Denver, if I'm not mistaken. And he went out to Colorado, and he would call me at times uh, because he took a job just kind of watching a, a, a nighttime parking lot, and he'd be sitting there in the little ticket booth studying for classes, and he'd call me. Tell me how things were going. And one day he called me and he says, hey, uh, I just want you to know, I, I said, I, I, I got my degree this week. 
I said, man, that is so amazing. Hamid, I'm so proud of you. And he said, and I also became a U.S. citizen in the same week. And I, I, said, I said, brother, I wish everybody felt like you did. And he took a job as an interpreter, went back to Afghanistan, got paid quite well now as a U.S. citizen to work in the U.S. Embassy. He called me one day from Afghanistan. He says, hey, I want you to know I've paid off all my student loans. I said, Hamid, you had a lot of student loans. How did you do that? And he goes, this country has given me so much, I don't want to have to owe it. I told him again how proud I was of him and how much it means to me that his attitude was what it was and I wished everybody had it. And this, this went on for a while. He, he, he eventually, believe it or not, he, he came back to school here. He got his master's from Yale. That kid from Afghanistan with $10 in his pocket got his master's in Yale at Yale University. And then he went back and he became an advisor to the president of Afghanistan. He came back to the United States just most recently. And we stay in touch. We talk every month or so. Uh, we, he's got a, a, a sweet wife now, a little baby boy who's about the same age as my grandson. And, uh, and Hamid is, in my opinion, exactly what America is all about. But we have a problem right now, and that's the leadership in this country that has seen fit to abandon the rest of the people like Hamid who have stood by us for so long. And they can stand up there at the podium and talk trash about how they're going to do what they can to try and help those who are there to get out. But they just left them behind. It's going to be pretty hard for them to go to the airport and get a ticket now if the Taliban own the airport. It's going to be pretty hard for them to get uh, permission and a visa or a green card to come to the United States if we're not doing uh, embassy interviews and stamping that paperwork. It's going to be difficult. And we've made it more difficult. Because what we've done is we've abandoned so many of our friends but I'm proud to say that Hamid is here. In a minute, I want to hear his perspective. I want you to hear his perspective. I'm not going to put words in his mouth. He may have a different perspective than me. But it's Phil Williams, Right Side Radio, solid conservative and just plain right. We'll be right back. This is News Talk 770 AM, 92.5 FM, WVNN.